Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic q and I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Thanks for joining us today. Pancreatic cancer, known as pancreatic adenocarcinoma in the medical community, is known to be one of the deadliest forms of cancer. Why is that, you may ask? Well, early detection is uncommon. Pancreatic cancer tends to spread quickly, and it also tends to recur more frequently than some other forms of cancer. While survival rates are typically 12 to 18 months, there have been significant improvements in surgical technique and chemotherapy, and even a new approach to treatment, which is giving some success in extending life expectancy for patients with pancreatic cancer. November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. Here to discuss this important topic, which is very timely with us, is Dr. Mark Trudy, surgeon at Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Santa Vege, who is a gastroenterologist. Thank you for being here today, gentlemen. You know, our public is so interested in hearing about these topics. And when we see in the news that it's uh, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, it, we have lots of questions for you. Dr. Trudy, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell us why is it we hear that pancreatic cancer is often not diagnosed until late or it's spread elsewhere in the body? Why is that? And are there symptoms that people should be watching for? Up to 50% of patients at the time of their diagnosis, we already find that the cancer has spread outside the pancreas to other organs, meaning stage four or metastatic pancreas cancer. Uh, the reason for that is typically twofold. Number one, it's a very biologically aggressive cancer. So these cancers develop numerous mutations and that allow them to metastasize much faster than other what we call more benign types of tumors. And the second issue has to do with the symptoms. So often these are nonspecific symptoms that could last for a period of time before a patient actually seeks medical care. Some of these nonspecific symptoms are abdominal or back pain, weight loss, anorexia, it isn't until you get really specific things like jaundice or their skin turns yellow, uh, their stools can turn lighter color, their urine gets darker. Uh, other uh, signs or symptoms are new onset diabetes. We find that to be associated with pancreas cancer or patients who have had longstanding diabetes that all of a sudden is difficult to treat. These are the most common presenting signs and symptoms. Interesting. What do you mean, Dr. Trudy, by um, the cancer can mutate? So all cancers, by definition, uh, there are genes in our bodies and all of our cells uh, that allow cells to grow and allow cells to stop growing. And the cancer, by definition, is the cell, the genes that tell the cancer to grow are in an on position, and the genes that tell the cancers to stop growing are in an off position. That's what makes it a cancer. And then it grows. Uh, those cells can then subsequently develop other mutations that allow them to survive outside of their normal area and they could spread to various sites of the body, to lymph nodes, to the liver, to the lungs, or to the abdominal cavity, which are the most common sites of spread of pancreas cancer. So is it fair to say that a pancreatic cancer cell is a cell that could have been a normal cell in the pancreas, but it mutated? Yes, that's correct. Dr. Vege, how do you go about diagnosing pancreatic cancer? I have seen so many changes in these four decades in this uh, disease. The diagnosis, the management, the understanding, so on and so forth. I think Dr. Truti has very, very clearly highlighted that the symptoms of this disease are nonspecific. So it is not possible to investigate every person with indigestion, gas, some abdominal pain, back pain, because only ultimately a small proportion of them will have this cancer. So it's not feasible to take and do scans on all of them. However, 
as he said, when jaundice happens, then I think you have a little more uh, specificity that, you know, along with the other symptoms, you, ha you can have probably a little higher chance it could be pancreatic cancer in the right setting. The first really test that we do once we have a strong suspicion it could be pancreatic cancer is actually what we call a triphasic or pancreas protocol CT scan. That will actually show the tumor with a 90% sensitivity. And the CT scan, if you see a mass in the pancreas and if the radiologist or the clinician like Dr. Truti or I feel it is most likely pancreatic adenocarcinoma, we are actually 90% right that it turns out to be pancreatic cancer. So that's the commonest investigation. Once you have that investigation, which suggests pancreatic cancer 90%, then we get a blood test called CA19-9, which is a tumor marker. And we don't use it for diagnosis initially, but once we have a CT scan suggesting we do that, because 85 to 90% of people with pancreatic cancer have high values. And if they have the high values, we use it as a baseline test to follow the disease after we give any therapy to look for early recurrence, et cetera. So that's the second thing, which is a blood test. If we have doubts or if for some reason CT scan is not possible, then we go to the MRI scan. Uh, that would be the uh, not the first line of scans that we use. But then extending the diagnosis further, the next step is once you say 90 to 95% certain that this is pancreatic cancer based on the CT scan and a high CA19-9, then no cancer is a cancer until you have the biopsy proof that it is cancer. So the most common way that we are getting biopsy now with this with an endoscopy where you put the scope into the stomach, the tip of the endoscope has an ultrasound probe. So you do the ultrasound of the pancreas from within the stomach so that you are next to the pancreas, then put in a needle into the tumor and take a core biopsy. You not only can see it under the microscopy by our pathologist, but if required, as Dr. Trutis has become the pioneer for our pancreatic cancer group at Mayo, you can also do a lot of what are called somatic mutations, which can be later utilized to see what type of chemotherapy, et cetera. So we start from clinical suspicion, CT scan, a tumor marker blood test after the CT scan, then biopsy, which is usually with an endoscopic ultrasound, unless the disease has spread it to the liver, in which case we can use an ultrasound guidance and put the needle into the liver lesion and take a biopsy. Just want to mention a little bit about the staging, which actually, once again, uh, uh, Dr. Truti has championed and actually streamlined the large Mayo practice of pancreatic cancer. He's using new techniques like PET MRI. A PET scan is a picture of the entire body, correct? So that you can see where there might be metastasis? So the PET scan is different from the CT scan and MRI scan. CT scan and MRI scan are primarily looking at the structural problems of organs of the body. Whereas the PET scan looks at the function of the cells in various parts of the uh, body. So if cancer cells are present not only in the pancreas, but in the liver or in the lungs or elsewhere, PET scan is utilizing the functional capacity of those cells to metabolize certain things called FDG, which we inject. And so then you fuse it with the structural CT, you get a function and structure of cells present anywhere in the body. So that can also be done by PET-MRI, which is the most recent thing which we are 
using in a large number at Mayo, and again, predominantly after Mark has channelized our whole practice. Does pancreatic cancer tend to run in families? In other words, is it hereditary? So this is a big topic by itself, but if I have to just simplify in a nutshell to the general public, approximately 10% of the pancreatic cancers have a hereditary basis, approximately. And if you take this 10%, about eight out of those 10% are called familial pancreatic cancer, which means they have a first degree relative or a second degree relative with pancreatic cancer. And about 2% are called syndromic hereditary pancreatic cancer. That means there are some clinical syndromes. Syndrome means there is a group of findings in a body besides pancreatic cancer. But there are some syndromes where there is a group of uh, uh, signs in the body, and then pancreatic cancer is more common amongst them. Like, for example, Lynch syndrome and uh, Pugh-Jagger syndrome. I don't want to uh, uh, confuse you with the names, but 8% of this 8% of the whole is with first degree or second degree relatives. So there is, there is a hereditary basis. And besides the syndromic cancers with the familial pancreatic cancer, now it is becoming more and more frequent to test the index patient who had pancreatic cancer, as well as the first degree relatives for some somatic mutations in the blood Normally, between 20 to 30 genes can be tested, which are usually cancer-causing genes. And there are about four or so which are more prevalent with the pancreatic cancer. There are mo many more, but four important things. So if we see them in the first-degree relative who had a first-degree, uh, particularly if they have two first-degree relatives, or if they have one first-degree relative and one of these four or five mutations in the blood, then there is some sort of screening, although the screening for pancreatic cancer is not like you know breast cancer or the uterine cancer, cervix cancer with the pap smear or prostate cancer. Still, we are doing some sort of screening with MRI every year and maybe endoscopic ultrasound once in three years. Of course, there are many issues that need to be settled with the screening. For the audience, for the vast majority of patients, uh, uh, these are what we would call uh, sp you know, sporadic tumors, meaning there's no associated uh, predisposition other than maybe some behaviors such as smoking or, or diabetes. Uh, and fortunately, it's not a particularly very common cancer, and therefore the lifetime risk of any given patient without any predisposing risk is only 1% to 3% lifetime risk. Every patient comes and asks uh, Dr. Truti or any one of us taking care of the pancreatic cancer, why don't you diagnose this early, you know, like uh, early breast cancer, early cervix cancer, early colon cancer with colonoscopy? So there are many issues. You know, there is no good screening test, which is cheap, effective, safe, and also can be rolled out like pap smear or mammogram or colonoscopy. Having said that, the screening for familial pancreatic cancer hereditary is completely different from the the sporadic cancers, which are 85, 90% like Dr. Truti said. However, even here in the early diagnosis, Mayo Clinic has really took the biggest lead, like Dr. Truti said, new onset diabetes. That means diabetes after 50 is something where your eyes should pop up. However, if you take 1,000 new onset diabetes after 50, only one of them will be pancreatic cancer. So you cannot screen all of them because the cost is prohibitive. However, based on about more than 15, 20 years work at Mayo by all the researchers, uh, actually Mark Truti is now leading a huge, huge research 
uh, endeavor in our uh, institution, we found that if you can enrich this new onset diabetes people, not all of them, but you know, see who are having uh, indigestion, abdominal symptoms, then see who have high CA19-9, then you know there is a score that is developed from here, looking at their previous three years blood sugars, and there is a score that is called NPAC score. If you put all these things, then you will come up with an enriched cohort of new onset diabetes where the risk is about anywhere from 50 to 74. And those people can be probably screened just like lung cancer and CT scan screening every year. And that is one of the major NIH endeavors that's going on. And we are one of the nine centers for that. I'm so glad you answered that because I was going to ask you, should we be anticipating that a screening test is going to come along like we use for so many other cancers, mammograms, colonoscopies, et cetera, but it doesn't sound like that's in the offing right now. Not immediately, but there is really a lot of progress that has been made in the last 10, 15 years. And right now the NIH has actually invested heavily for this thing. So hopefully in three years, I think uh, we may have some news about this. Dr. Trudy, we've talked a little about what symptoms may be experienced, how you diagnose pancreatic cancer. Could you move to the topic of telling us about treatment? What has traditional treatment been like and how is your approach uh, changing? So treatment options for pancreas cancer uh, primarily stems from uh, what stage those patients are at presentation. As I said, 50% of patients at diagnosis already have spread of the cancer to other organs. Uh, chemotherapy is the primarily treatment for those patients. That leaves another proportion of 50% of patients who at least on the initial uh, imaging and, and staging evaluation, they appear to be what we call non-metastatic. It's localized to the pancreas. Uh, and those patients may be candidates for additional treatments such as radiation or surgery in addition to chemotherapy. Now, we do know that patients who undergo an operation to remove their tumor can live significantly longer than those patients who do not have an operation. However, there are certain limitations, and in order to get the benefit from an operation, there are three primarily things that we look at. Number one has to do with a margin. So what does a margin mean? Uh, if I'm to perform an operation for pancreas cancer, I have to remove the tumor without leaving any cancer cells behind. If I do an operation and I leave cancer cells behind, uh, essentially we've negated the benefit of that operation. Second, we can't have any evidence of metastases or spread of the cancer. There's no benefit in removing the primary tumor that is spread to other distant organs. And third, the patient has to be in, in excellent fitness to be able to tolerate whatever magnitude of operation that is so that they, cannot they don't get a life-threatening complication that would prevent them from getting the chemotherapy that they require. So those are the three things we look at. Now, in general, traditionally, if a patient had a localized tumor, uh, meaning it does not involve any significant blood vessels and where the pancreas is located, there are a critical number of veins and arteries, those patients would typically undergo an operation. Uh, we've been doing that for several decades, and unfortunately, the long-term outcomes are poor, meaning a significant portion of those patients did end up having a positive margin. A significant portion of those patients developed early uh, uh, recurrent disease in distant sites, meaning that was probably there already. We just weren't aware of it. And third, those patients either suffered complications from their operations or didn't recover well enough to receive any chemotherapy. Thus, there's a big movement into treating patients prior to the operation with a combination of chemotherapy uh, plus or minus radiation. 
The other big thing that we've done here is uh, doing more extensive operations. So again, typically only about 15% of patients whose tumors were localized to the pancreas alone were candidates for surgery. We've expended, expanded that criteria to patients who now have tumors that involve significant blood vessels, such as veins and arteries. And because of our work, we're now able to apply that uh, treatment uh, paradigm to a larger fraction of patients. And with improved chemotherapy, with appropriate radiation, and with these complex operations and getting them through that, we are now taking a greater proportion of patients to the operating room, which it was significantly improved long-term outcomes, meaning survival, which is what the patients are interested in. Maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. We know that this diagnosis of pancreatic cancer has a carried significant mortality. So what improvements are you seeing in mortality rates for patients receiving care in this way? Quite significant and pretty dramatic. And a lot of it has to do with uh, the new chemotherapies that we have. So traditionally, you know, you know over about, about five, a little more than five years ago, we were limited with single agent chemotherapies, which had response rates of less than 10%. Now, when you have a drug that only has a less than 10% response rate, you're not going to see much of a benefit regardless of how aggressive you want to be surgically. Now we have what we call combinatorial regimens, meaning where they take multiple chemotherapies and put them together. And currently there are two of those types of regimens that we have uh, with response rate, you know, greater than 30, 40, 50, and some patients 60% response rates. Uh, and so therefore now we're able to apply that chemotherapy prior to surgery and then ultimately get them to a potential operation. And, then, and on top of that, we are now doing bigger, you know, larger operations that other institutions uh, don't consider. So are average life expectancies changing or is it just depend solely on that type of cancer and where it is that the patient has? So the, the traditionally, you know, what we did for several decades, again, as I said before, we, a patient had a localized tumor, they went to the operating room, uh, they may have had a good operation, maybe it wasn't great, and they may or may not have gotten chemotherapy. Uh, we have decades of data on that approach, and the average survival is about 20 months. So for someone with you know, so-called early stage disease, that's a pretty poor outcome. We're seeing patients now having median survivals in the four to five, six year range with this combinatorial treatment. And the key thing is you have all these different modalities. You have chemotherapy, you have radiation, and you have surgery. It's to put them together in the right amount, in the right sequence, making sure you're doing things appropriately to get the outcome that you're looking for. What's the outcome? The outcome is not an operation. The outcome is to extend that patient's life and maintain or improve their quality of life. That's the outcome any cancer patient wants. And we're trying to get them there with utilizing all these tools we have. Wow, that's amazing. What amazing work is going on at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Vega, why do you think that the Mayo Clinic is uniquely positioned to do this kind of uh, work, particularly in pancreatic cancer? So this is a very important question. And it's not uh, a secret that the whole world both within the country and outside the country knows what Mayo Clinic is. And we are all really fortunate and blessed to be working in this institution. And uh, I, I mean 200% by that. But the thing is, uh, I'm also fortunate in the last three decades to have traveled practically every important institution in every continent and the country and have seen the practice. And you know, I have respect for all the great institutions in the country, outside the country. but. Coming to Mayo Clinic, these are the things that will really make an impact on the increased survival, which uh, Dr. Truti is talking about. First of all, we have very high volume, besides an excellent institution where we all practice. 
And we have a very high volume pancreas clinic, which functions every day seeing only pancreatic disease patients and the like of which is not present in any other institution in this country or elsewhere, daily pancreas clinic. Then the pancreas clinic is a hub which is usually run by gastroenterologists called pancreatologists. And I've been the director of this for many, many years till recently. But this hub has beautiful input from the important specialties that deal with pancreatic cancer. The first one is actually the, 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 the surgeons. And we have six top-notch pancreatic surgeons led by Dr. Truti. Where else you find so many high quality surgeons. Then we have medical oncology, again, dedicated oncologists to pancreas. Then we have diagnostic radiologists, radiotherapists, dedicated pathologists, basic science workers, epidemiology people. So all of this makes a huge pancreatic cancer specialty group. This is a very, very important reason because it actually functions in a very seamless manner, despite having such a big group, which once again, doesn't exist anywhere. Then actually we are very fortunate that Mark, you know, has gone back for further training and came back here. And now he has become virtually the champion of pancreatic cancer for all of us who are involved in this disease for many, many years. But now everything is channeled in a way that ultimately is going to achieve two important things. One is most important, the best outcomes for the patient, which Mark already, Dr. Truti has already spoken about. And the second thing is new research, new opportunities, where once again, we are right at the forefront. So these are the reasons why I think if I have a family member or a friend or if it happens to me, I would not like to be treated anywhere else. Uh, I, I'd want to add to, to Dr. Vegi's great points. You know, those are absolutely uh, a multitude of reasons uh, in why we're uniquely positioned for this particular cancer. Uh, the other aspect, uh, one thing I've noticed, you know, since I've been here, is what I refer to as the co-evolution of practices. So uh, because we're Mayo Clinic, we're a tertiary referral center. So patients have gotten the diagnosis typically, and they've gotten an opinion, a standard of care opinion, and they came here to get another opinion. They didn't come here to get the same opinion. They came here for something beyond standard of care. That's the point. And if we feel that we can offer them something beyond standard of care, because again, standard of care leads to standard outcomes. No one wants a standard outcome for pancreas cancer. They want extraordinary outcomes. So we have to be able to do something extraordinary. Now, I couldn't do my practice without the support of, of the, uh, people like Dr. Vagi and the pancreas clinic and all the proceduralists, nor could I do my practice without all the radiologists with, with imaging, uh, with all uh, the interventionalists to help these patients get through surgery. So I'm able to do something that I've never done before, no one's ever done before, and I then push my fellow colleagues to do things that they're not comfortable with, and we sort of co-evolve. We all get better. So I, I do an operation that's never been done. I need someone to get me out of a complication that they've never done before either. And we kind of move together. Uh, and that's, for example, Dr. Vagy mentioned the PETMR. 
So that was a machine that came to Mayo. They still weren't certain how best to use it. And I heard some of the radiologists discussing it. And I said, this would work perfectly for pancreas cancer. This is what we're, we're looking for. Because I need a way to be able to tell that the chemotherapy we're giving is effective. Otherwise, we, CT scans are poorly effective at that. And it went from PET-MR never being used for anything. Now it's the pancreas cancer is the number one indication for a PET-MR. And that's the first thing I look at when I see a patient back after initial chemotherapy, what does their PET-MR show? Uh, is the chemo effective or not? Because that's the big question. So we've kind of co-evolved and we're continuing to do so. I also actually inadvertently forgot to mention the, the interventional diagnostic and interventional endoscopies that we have. That's a huge, huge group. And we have so many experts who can practically do any intervention on the pancreas with the help of the scopes. So that's another big uh, group that plays a very important role. Yeah, not many people say no. They say this may be difficult. We've not done this, but let's try something else. And usually yes. that ends up with a, with a good outcome. I love that you both brought up the Mayo Clinic collaborative approach to care and team-based care, uh, because it's one of the things that patients comment the most on uh, to me as a physician is that they can't believe how well uh, the Mayo Clinic providers and physicians communicate amongst themselves. It doesn't take weeks to months uh, to get work done. And I have the joy of caring uh, for many of Dr. Trudy's patients on the hospital service when they're inpatient and they are exceedingly complimentary of the coordination of care that they've received and the high level of care and the um, anticipation that they have of having good positive outcomes. So thank you both for sharing with us today. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic physicians, surgeon Dr. Mark Trudy and gastroenterologist Dr. Sante Vege for being with us here today to talk about pancreatic cancer. Uh, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. We appreciate you being with us today. I hope you learned something. I know that I did. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu. Thanks for listening and be well.